reading from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 27 to 30. So please rise to your feet as we read God's word. You shall not commit adultery. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be going to hell. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks be to God. I was a little bit more muted after that passage. <laughs> wonder why. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's good to see you. Uh, for those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. We're walking through the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, repeat, the repeated refrain that we're seeing uh, in the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments, and by extension, God's law, it's never the means by which we enter God's family. Uh, that only happens through grace, uh, through the gift of Christ. Uh, however, once we're in the family of God by grace, the law of God actually provides the means and the boundaries by which we love other people and enjoy greater freedom. And this idea that laws and boundaries give more freedom and enable more love rather than less, that's counterintuitive to us, especially in our Western culture. Um, but true freedom always involves boundaries. And so just as an example, imagine if you're at a rooftop party in a big city. Not that I'm invited to many of those, uh, but say you're, you know, on a rooftop and it's a, you know, you're way up high sc- skyscraper type of building, square top, and there is no fence or guardrail around the outside. Okay, it's just, just a sheer, you know, multiple hundred yard drop off the side. I can tell you, even if there was music and good food and people encouraging me to dance, I would not be dancing, right? I would just be frozen in the middle, right? But if you're at an event like that, right, the the boundaries around the outside actually give you freedom by which you can move and dance and love other people. And what God is telling us is that's how his commands work. Uh, His commands never get us in the party, okay? Through Jesus, you're already A-list, But once you're in God's family, his commands provide the boundaries by which we enjoy more freedom. And so that's how the law of God works, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law that we see in the New Testament. Now, I don't know that there's one area, or at least it's in the top three or four. There's one area where we have a harder time believing that God's law provides freedom than when it comes to fidelity and sexuality, the topic of the Seventh Commandment. And I can already feel... You know, some of you are a little bit squeamish, and that's understandable, um, you know, just given the wide variety of backgrounds in here. And, you know, it's not like I woke up this morning super excited to get to <laughs> have to be the one up here talking about this. But yet, I, I, I kind of was as well, and that's because one of the things I appreciate about Jesus is he actually talks about real-life issues, And this is an issue where it clearly, it intersects with all of us, you know, at a very personal level. And if we can trust anyone when it comes to this topic, it's Jesus. And so let's look at what he has to say about this topic. And so here's how we'll break it down. Uh, First, we'll look at just how does the framework of the Ten Commandments itself help us with this topic of sexuality? Okay, so that's first one, just look at the framework of the Ten Commandments. Number two, we'll look at our culture's general understanding of sex and relationships. 
And then number three, we'll look at what is the vision for sex that Jesus gives us. Okay, so first, number one, the framework that we're given in the Ten Commandments. Number two, what's our culture's understanding of sex? And then number three, uh, what's the vision that Jesus puts forward for us in this topic? All right, so first, number one, how do the Ten Commandments frame this discussion? It's, this is so helpful, but it's so implicit that it's hard to see. And what we need to see here is, is you look at, we're at now the seventh commandment. And so this commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, which, I mean, at minimum it means, right, don't, if you're married, don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. But it more broadly applies to having sex with anyone you're not married to. And as we look at this, first, the first thing we need to notice in the Ten Commandments is it's only one of the ten, and it's not the first. And this is why this is noteworthy, because especially for those of you who grew up or went to a church that had a purity culture kind of mentality. And if you don't know what that means, it's, I mean, in a very broad brush term, essentially sex is treated as very dirty. Uh, Sex is also, it's like the main thing that people always want to talk about in the worst kinds of ways. And sex outside of marriage, it was often presented and especially often mainly directed toward women is like the main unforgivable sin that if you commit, you're beyond the pale. And what I love about this is by God making it just one of the ten, and not even the first, is what he's communicating is if you've had sex outside of marriage, um, or if something has happened to you in this realm, that no more defines you than any of the other things on the Ten Commandments. Uh, And in fact, the idea that this somehow is the main thing that now marks you moving forward, that's anti-gospel. Because in the gospel, what your fundamental identity is, is you're made in the image of God, and then you're redemptively made new through Jesus. And so wherever you're at in this area, whether you feel like you've obeyed the law or not, this isn't your fundamental identity, and there's tons of renewal and hope here. So that's really good news. Um, So it's just one of the ten. On the other hand, for those of us who tend to just shrug this off as, ah, whatever, you know, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago, it doesn't apply today— Uh, or for those of us who are so wary, understandably, of talking about this topic because we're so afraid, and we should be wary of falling back into a purity culture type of mentality. The thing is, is while it is just one of the ten, it is one of the ten. So when God decided to give us his blueprint for life and for loving other people, this did make the short list. And so it's something that we need to talk about. Um, And what's noteworthy here is, One one thing I was noticing as I was studying it this week is sexual sinners or those who walked outside God's design when it came to sex, they were often the ones who felt the most comfortable around Jesus. In fact, it was those who felt they were blameless in this area who were the most repulsed by him. That should tell us something. And the reason why people who were sexual sinners felt so comfortable around Jesus, it wasn't because he minimized it or said, eh, whatever, it doesn't really matter. No, but it was because of the understanding that he met him with because of the, the gentleness with which he met them with. And so as a church, you know, if we know Jesus, we should be like that as well. Where we're not afraid to talk about it, uh, but at the same time, we should always be treating people with as much understanding and compassion and gentleness as we can, especially in this area that is so personal. So hopefully that helps even just seeing how God frames in the Ten Commandments that gives us, it should give us a, a helpful balance as we talk about this, right? So we're not taking it further than God wants us to, but also we can address it and know that God has a good design for it. So that's the first thing. So number two, now that we look at the general framework of it, 
Um, what is the culture's understanding of it? And where, how am I getting this even from this passage? So now let's move from the Ten Commandments to where Jesus expounds on this commandment in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says in Matthew 5, verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you. And so here's what he's doing. When he says, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Yes, he's referring to the Seventh Commandment. But, and then when he says, but I say to you, what he's doing there is he's talking about how the prevailing culture is talking about the commandment, and then he's going to contrast it with his more positive vision. So, for example, if you look at verse 43, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you think he's just quoting scripture, he's not, because nowhere in the Bible does it say, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's talking about how, how do the teachers of the day, how are they communicating the Bible? So same thing here, he's saying, Here how, here's how the teachers of the day are talking about this commandment. And so it is for us, you know, we need to look at, because it's just the air we breathe, how does our surrounding culture uh, talk about this? And it can just help to name it uh, so that we can better and more lovingly engage and so that we can grow ourselves as followers of Jesus. And as you look at how our culture understands this topic, I think what's intriguing is that Two ethics are championed, and yet they are more or less mutually exclusive, and they contradict each other, but yet they're held up together and preached all the same. And so here's the first thing that our—I'm painting with a broad brush, right? So of course not everyone will say yes is what I believe, but just in general, this is what we tend to see in the media and as we just examine people's assumptions and so forth. So the, the first thing that our culture will say is sex is just an appetite. Okay, so it's just a, it's a physical appetite, you get thirsty, you drink water, you have a sexual urge, you have sex. Like, it's really not that big of a deal, and so we need to, we need to get away from these older, outdated um, ideas, right, that sex is sacred, and, you know, we definitely need to stop policing what people want to do in the privacy of the, their own bedroom, because it's just, it's just a physical act, like, more or less. So that's one thing, but then on the other hand, our culture will say, sex is everything, right? So your sexuality is the deepest part of who you are. And you can't be a fully authentic person unless you're expressing yourself sexually. You can't be fully human, right, unless you're expressing yourself sexually. So it's, it means almost nothing, but yet it, mean, it means everything, right? And it's like it's part of the key to a full and flourishing human life. And so a question, which is, we, I mean, we have to ask this about any cultural assumption when it comes to money, politics, success, anything. We just have to ask, is this working? You know, when you get on the ground, and sure, it, you know, it is for some people would say, yeah, like I'm enjoying good life and so forth. But I think for a lot of people, and I've had conversations as well, when you get on the ground with real people, and you ask, you know, is there a deep sense of satisfaction and wholeness and rootedness when it comes to your sex life? Do you have deep security about who you are and your sense of self? I don't know that a lot of people would say, I'm where I want to be. And one author who's been helpful for me in this regard, her name is Christine Emba, and she's a op-ed columnist for the Washington Post, and she's by no means, you know, a conservative Christian or anything like that, at least from what I can tell, and she recently wrote a book called Rethinking Sex, and she, she's talking about this, and she's part of the sex and dating scene in D.C., 
But she's, one of the main things she's looking at is, okay, so we, like, the main ethic we have in our culture is consent, right? Like, just as long as you have consent, two people or more should be able to do whatever they want. And she's like, that's good. And I'm, we as Christians should also say, yes, that's good. You know, you should have consent. But she says, is that actually leading to wholeness in people's sex lives? And uh, here's one of the things that she says, and it should be up there so you can follow along as well. <clears throat> She writes, our society may be more sexually liberated than ever before, but many men and women aren't as happy with the new status quo as the broader culture would have you believe. The dissatisfaction shows up in the stories women tell each other through literature, at parties, over whisper networks. The stories often go viral because they align with the ones many women haven't felt free to tell because any critique of sexual permissiveness is seen as puritanical or even childish. In many of the situations we've held out as enlightened, so the casual, the kinky, the polyamorous, and the experimental, the actual practice of sex seems less pleasant than it did before when there was at least a little held back. Rather than expanding our happiness, liberation seems to have shrunk it. And so you hear what she's saying. She's saying while the broader culture, i.e., you know, the media and Ivy League classrooms and so forth, would tell you overall more people are happier with our, quote, more liberated sex ethic. When, when, at least this is just her talking. She says, when I get on the ground with people, and she interviews a lot of men and women throughout the book. She says, in general, I have a lot of people telling me, okay, I, I know it's just a physical act, but it feels like more than that. You know, so can you help me understand it? Or they talk about getting crushed by the expectations of making it, of making it their identity. And so just what she examines in the book is, you know, what, and she's like, even though a lot of people in my own circles will call me a heretic for questioning the modern ethic because we don't want to regress, you know, to where we were, I just, we need to ask the hard questions about, you know, is our modern ethic working? And she doesn't think so. And then she gives, which she gives a lot of really good ideas of, of how it can be better. And so more or less, if we can say this, this practice generally isn't working, you know, for our culture, does, is there a better way? And that's what Christine Emba asked. And Jesus would say, yes, there is a better way. And it's the vision that I'm putting forward. And so as we go into this, as we look at Jesus's vision for sexuality, I think I was really challenged by this. Um, I think we just, we need to ask as we think about the area of sexuality, do we believe that what Jesus teaches is good? Because a lot of times how preachers talk about it, how we talk about it in our friend groups, it's kind of like, I really wish this wasn't what Jesus said, but darn it, that old Jesus or that old Paul, like this is what he says, and I'm, I wish it wasn't, and I get it, you know, we're trying to empathize with people, but I, remember, I was talking with someone a couple years ago, and we were talking about, and he's not a believer, and he was asking me just very pointed questions about sexuality, and halfway through the conversation, he goes, do you even think this is a good, like, do you even think what the Bible says is good? And it, it really hit me that, like, what was I communicating about my Savior, and my king, because my tone was like, oh, this just is really horrible, but because this, like, darn book says it, we have to follow it. And so I hope we're not going to be able to touch on everything, and we aren't going to get very, we're not going to get that granular, but we're just going to begin to establish a framework for how Jesus talks about it. I hope we can begin to see, you know, may, you may not fully get there yet, and I know we have a lot of different backgrounds in here, just why what Jesus presents is good, okay? So uh, what's the first thing we see when it comes to Christ's vision for sexuality. And the first thing we see is he, he gives us this vision in order to protect the vulnerable. 
to protect the vulnerable. So see where he says in verse 28, and hopefully you'll see exactly where I'm getting this on each of these points. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now he is using a masculine pronoun there. And so this does apply to, you know, men, uh, women lusting after men and, and men lusting after women. But it's, in, it's noteworthy that he highlights men here. Um, and it's not just because, in general, men tend to struggle with this more. Um, but he's also highlighting it because in this culture, Greco-Roman society, sexual morality was defined by those with societal status and those with power. And so, and we still, ha- we still have vestiges of this today, but especially even more so than this meant that wealthy men were privileged, privileged in this regard, and women and slaves and children were at significant, not just disadvantage, but in danger. Because what was taught was that if you're a married woman, yes, have sex with your husband, but there are dire consequences if you sleep with someone who's not your husband. Shame and honor culture, you're dishonoring your husband. However, there was a double standard for men. And so even if you're a married man, your wife was more or less viewed as just the carrier of your children. But then if you wanted to satisfy a sexual urge, you could force yourself on another woman, a child slave, an adult slave, and with impunity, with no penalty. Okay, and this, this was normal. And so when Jesus comes along and he, he tells men specifically, you're not to lust in your heart and certainly not with your body towards someone who's not your spouse, he is protecting those who are vulnerable in the society. And then Paul comes along in 1 Corinthians 7 and he says it's not just that a woman's body belongs to her husband, but in a marriage a man's body also belongs to his wife. I.e., by restricting sexuality to, by restricting sex to marriage and making it super consensual, right, they're protecting the weak. And there's a historian named Tom Holland. He's not a believer, but he wrote a book called Dominion and how we got to a lot of our Western values of, you know, human dignity, human rights today. And and he, he asked this question. He says, how did we in the West get to our idea of consent when it comes to sex? Like, you, you must have consent. Um, why were people so rightly enraged at something like the Harvey Weinstein scandal, right, when that came out? Um, why do we just assume now that it's wrong to rape someone? And he says these values came from Christianity because what Jesus and Paul and the New Testament authors taught was that this is, you need consent because every soul, right, regardless of gender, regardless of your social status, is made in the image of God and should be treated with the dignity as such. And so it's just kind of, he says it's kind of ironic that many in our culture hate the Christian sex ethic on one hand, but on the other hand, uphold with, you know, um, with intensity the values of human rights and human dignity. So it's just, it's kind of interesting. But so this, that's the first reason Jesus presents this vision is to protect the vulnerable. That's the first thing. Second, he gives us this vision to help us honor persons. He helps us to honor persons. So Verse 28 again, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her heart. So when he says when a man looks at a woman or by implication a woman looks at a man with lustful intent, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying if you're walking down the street and you see someone as attractive, you've just sinned. 
And you need to repent. That's not what he's saying. You're a human being, right? And so if you see someone and you just find them attractive, you're not in sin. You're seeing someone who's made in the image of God. What Jesus is saying here is when you move from, oh, wow, that's a beautiful person, and you move from acknowledgement to desire, and then further than that, to the desire to possess, that's lustful intent. When you look at someone, you don't just say you're attractive, but I want to have you in some way. I want to consume you in some way. I want to have you sexually without committing my life to you. So that's lustful intent. And so the question that Jesus is posing to us by implication is, what is the best context for sex in which you can treat a person as a person and not as a thing? Right, where you can treat a person as someone with supreme dignity and not as an object. Is it outside of marriage, where by definition, even if you love one another, it's going to be more transactional, and it's going to be more about self-gratification and not about whole life commitment? Or is it in the context of a marriage, where the act of sex is an expression of a vow? You've already made that person where you say, I've promised my whole life to you to sacrificially and compassionately care for you. Which context will help us treat people as persons? And again, Christine Emba in her book, Rethinking Sex, she, she talks about this, not this specifically, but she talks about this idea of just how in sex we, we should be treating people as full persons. And here's what she writes. Right now, the broad agreement seems to be that sex is good, and the more of it we have, the better. There's only one rule. Get consent for whatever you're about to do from your partner beforehand. Except most of us aren't looking for just sex, and that's why the broad agreement isn't working. What we're all looking for is sex that respects us as human persons. Making the standard of consent our sole criterion for good sex, we punt on the question of how to conduct a relationship that's not only allowable, but also right. And then, here's, she, how she, here's how she ends. One that affirms us in our existence as sovereign human beings of intrinsic worth. And that is engaged with our human dignity and mind. And so, you see, what she's seeking here, she's saying, I'm just simply looking for a framework that enables to treat people as we intuit that people should be treated. Right? People of immense dignity, of immense worth. And so, this is why Jesus gives us the vision for sex within marriage. Because he says, if, if, just, if pleasure and self-fulfillment was the main reason for sex, then like, it would make sense to have it outside of marriage. And it, it is a part of sex. I mean, don't you love that God decided to create things that give us pleasure, even though he didn't have to? Right? So let's be clear, in these conversations, sometimes it's just like sex is bad. No, it's, it's good. Right? I love that God made sunsets beautiful. He didn't have to do that. He made food extremely tasty. He didn't have to do that. And when it comes to sex, he made it pleasurable, even though he didn't have to do that. But what Jesus is saying is because the bottom line and the ultimate purpose of sex isn't self-gratification, but it's designed to be a doorway into my love, which is fully sacrificial and permanent and full, that's what it's supposed to be a picture of. 
And so hopefully we can at least begin, and even if you don't maybe even, like, you don't fully agree with that, I, I hope you can at least see, like, that is a pretty beautiful picture. And that is a pretty wonderful thing to think about, you know, and to pursue. And so, and if you're married, uh, we just have to say you're not off the hook here. Because a lot of times I think married couples assume, and some, this is often taught in the church, right? Like stay sexually pure until you get married and then you do whatever. But here's the issue. Um, you can be, quote, sexually pure in the sense of you don't have sex before marriage. But if you're still used to lusting after other, other individuals. And just, by the way, like brief pause here. Um, I just have to make this very clear. As I talk about this, you're hearing this from somebody who has struggled in this area immensely, okay? So, like, please don't hear this as me pointing the finger. This is something I've battled through a lot of my life. I'm still working on things with Kelsey. Um, I'm just communicating here what, what God's Word is saying, okay? So I just want to make that super clear. Um, because if you're used to looking at people with lustful intent, right, whether that's through pornography or just your own fantasies or having sex with other people, it's not like a wedding ceremony will suddenly magically change you. And so even if you're married, like yes, you're having sex within marriage, you can still view sex, whether you're the person in the marriage who desires sex more, the person who desires sex less, you can use sex still as a means for your own control or your own sex or your own gratification. And so for those of you who are married or those of you who are uh, preparing to get married, just like a really helpful and good question to ask, you know, wherever you are in the relationship of if you desire it more or less or or if it's mutual, is am I approaching the area of sexuality with my spouse in a way that's way more about what I can give to my spouse rather than what I can get in return? And if you do that, and it's hard, it takes great communication, but if you do that, I guarantee you, Kelsey and I have experienced this, I guarantee you will have so much more joy, intimacy, and oneness in your marriage. But the point here is we just have to be careful of assuming, oh, married people are good, um, because no, often married people can struggle with this in ways that single people don't because they still just, they want to use sex as a means of consumption. And the, for those of you who aren't married, in part of the seventh commandment is to honor marriage. We need other people in our lives to say just, hey, how's your marriage going? Like we need people in the church to ask us these questions. Okay, so that's, that's number two, is just by Jesus giving this ethic of sex within marriage, he's helping us to treat people as persons rather than things. Okay, number three, uh, why does Jesus give us us this ethic? And it's to help us walk in wisdom. So let's look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Okay. (laughs) There's a lot we could say here. Um, Here's what Jesus isn't saying, that you can somehow, like, through sexual purity— keep yourself out of hell, and enter into heaven. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying if you've ever struggled with this or you continue to struggle in this area, then you're doomed. Why? Because all of us struggle in this area, okay? And we'd all be condemned. In fact, if you're struggling in this area, please hear this, that is a sign of life, okay? When EMTs rush into a scene where there's a disaster, who do they go to first? They don't go to the people who are lying still because that means they're dead. They go to the people who are struggling because it's a sign of life, because if you're struggling in this area, don't believe the lie that somehow you're condemned or you're too far gone. That's a sign that God's Spirit's in you, and He's helping you to, to walk in obedience. Okay, but what Jesus is saying here is, just like any area, 
money, success, our own ego, when we make sex our bottom line, and it's like the main thing or the main voice that we're going to submit our life to, we're like, okay, that's great, God says this, but I'm just going to do what I want over here. We begin to not think clearly, okay, because the Lord has designed us, right? And ultimately, when we submit our desires to anything other than Jesus, just by definition, we begin to not see the world clearly. And what Jesus is saying here by saying, you know, cut off your eye or, or your arm if it causes you to sin, he, I'm pretty sure he's not being literal. Um, that ult- ultimately wouldn't solve the problem anyway. Uh, what he's saying is, like, take extreme measures because sexuality is such a potent force. And just one example that we have in the Bible that we know it's such a potent force is King David. I mean, King David was an incredible human being. Super courageous, super wise, super God-loving. I mean, even just when you look at the beginning of his life when he was a shepherd boy, when a lion would come to attack the sheep, he'd stand his ground and kill the lion with his bare hands. I mean, I'm sorry, if I'm a shepherd and it comes down to defending Fluffy and Muffy or running— I'm choosing running, okay? And I don't know if that says something in particular about me being one of your all shepherds, <laughs> but, okay, I'm running. Okay, and then, you know, he takes down Goliath because he's trusting in the Lord. He spares Saul's life, Saul who was trying to kill him because he's showing him mercy. And this is a godly, courageous man. But then what was the point of his life? What was the point in his life where everything started to go downhill? It was when he saw the wife of one of his best friends, Bathsheba, bathing, And he took her and basically assaults her and then kills her husband, one of his best friends. And what's so scary about it, in addition to the just atrocity of it all, is David felt justified. Like when Nathan came to confront him, it was, I think it was around nine months later, and David still didn't think he had done anything wrong. Because there's something about this area, and it happens in other areas too, but tonight we're we're talking about sexuality. Where when we just stop deciding to follow God's will here, we just, we begin to justify things that we shouldn't justify doing. And so Jesus is saying, he's he's basically, he's just saying, take whatever measures you need to do to follow the Lord here. Okay, a, a friend of mine, when he was in grad school, I know he just, he cut off internet access in his apartment just because he knew when he was alone, that wasn't gonna be good. I'm just speaking openly with you all. Um, I've stopped working on things late at night alone. I just, when Kelsey goes to bed, I just shut things down because honestly, I just, I need more external measures of accountability. And so Jesus is saying, do whatever is required because otherwise, the issue isn't whether or not you sin in this area because we all sin in this area. The issue is what do you do in response to when temptation comes and when sin happens? Do you repent and go back and believe or do you just say, man, whatever? Okay, and so Jesus gives us this to walk in wisdom. That's the most sobering part of this message. And then next we get to look at probably the most beautiful part of this message. Okay, so he, he gives us this command to help us protect the vulnerable, honor persons, um, to help us walk in wisdom. And then number four, because in this area we get forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness and freedom. And so if you remember anything from this, um, I hope you remember this, uh, because for some of you, maybe some of you here are still just wrestling with this whole idea in general, but I know for many of you here, just by the nature of the topic, there are those of you here who feel defeated, because you feel like you just keep trying and you can't obey the Lord here. Those of you who maybe something 
you've had an experience in the past that just continues to affect you in an intense way. And so I, what I love is how Jesus meets those who are in similar situations, and I just, I want to look at it. And it's in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. You can turn there if you'd like. And this, this is just one example among many of when you see Jesus meet people in this type of scenario. And uh, credit where credit is due, there's a pastor named James Forsyth who gave a message on this that was really helpful for me. And so I just want to look at this and put ourselves in this woman's shoes. And so what happens in John chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, you see that it's early in the morning and Jesus is teaching outside the temple. So just try to like feel yourself being in this scene. So it's early morning. The sun is rising. Market stalls are opening. Children are rubbing their eyes as they step, as they step outside of their houses to play. And Jesus is outside of the temple, and he's teaching, and so people are coming into him as the sun's rising, and so essentially they're in church. They're in church service. Then in verse 3 and 4, what we see is, you know, they're in church, and then all of a sudden there's commotion, and this group of people comes rushing in. It's a bunch of men, religious teachers, surrounding one woman. And what's happened is, is this woman, just probably an hour or so before, was found in the arms of a man who wasn't her husband. And people come crashing through the door. They grab her. And so now she's getting dragged into a church service by men probably around the age of her father. And maybe she's naked, at most, a thin blanket on her. And she's getting pulled into a worship service. And as she does, like, can you imagine the shame? So it's not just that one of your greatest moments of shame and failure have been found out, but it's being paraded in front of a multitude of people for everybody to see. So then as these religious leaders are standing there with eyes narrowed, you know, fuming in rage and holding stones that they want to use to stone the lust out of her, they say, this woman has violated the law, thou shalt not commit adultery, and the law says that we should be able to stone her. And so they look at Jesus, what will you have us do? And you can imagine everything going silent, and everyone, especially the woman, is wondering, what is Jesus going to say? And first, I love it, he just, he kneels down, he starts drawing in the dirt. We don't know what he draws, people have speculated, we don't know what he drew, but I think he's just trying to diffuse some tension. And then what he does, much to the surprise of the religious leaders, is he stares at them in the face and he says, if any of you here without sin, you be the one to cast the first stone. And what he's doing here is he's not minimizing what the woman has done, but he's calling out their disgusting hypocrisy, right? Because they're not about justice here. If they were, about, if they cared about justice, they would have dragged the man in too, but they only drag in the woman. It's some twisted sense of self-righteousness they're trying to satisfy. So he says, if, if you're without sin here, then go ahead and cast the first stone. And then so you can imagine everyone's wondering what's going to happen, but it's nothing but silence, only broken by the stones falling to the ground as the people walk away. And at this point in the story, what most of us jump to is, oh my goodness, like what a sigh of relief for, for the woman. But this is actually the darkest, most ominous part in the story. Because now what you have, when you put yourself in the woman's position in her context, is you have a sinful woman who, according to the law, deserves to be put to death by stoning, a sinless man 
who's the only one with the right to stone her in a pile of rocks. And so I, I want you to put yourself in her position because I, in this area of sexuality, it has to be in the top three. When it comes to how we view God in this area, okay, we have the most intense feelings of confusion or bitterness or shame or guilt or hard-heartedness or fear. Like, how do you view me because of how I behave or how I continue to behave in this area? And so what Jesus says next to this woman really matters, Because what Jesus says, God says. And so as you see how he responds to her, you know how God looks at you and treats you. And so what does he say next? He says, verse 10, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I.e., When you stand next to me, there is no other voice that has the power to accuse you. And for a lot of you, you have heard, there have been many voices of condemnation coming from stone throwers in your life. It might be your parents. It might be a friend. It might be a spouse. It might be a church leader. It might be your own head condemning you. And what Jesus is saying, therefore what God is saying, is when you are in Jesus, no other voice has the power to condemn you or has power over you and certainly doesn't define you. And then he finishes with, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. He speaks a word of freedom, and then he speaks, he speaks a word of forgiveness, and then he speaks a word of freedom. And the meaning of the sentence is established by their order. You're forgiven, now go and sin no more. Not, sin no more, and then maybe I'll forgive you. Okay, so the meaning of Christianity and the outcome of your life depends on this order. So he says, neither do I, he says, you're forgiven. And this isn't cheap forgiveness. This is gospel forgiveness. What this woman doesn't know is that probably a year later, Jesus is going to the cross and be condemned as the worst adulterer so that in him, she can be found full and free as a child of God. And so it is for you. So he says, you're forgiven. Now go and sin no more. He actually gives her freedom now to walk in newness of life. And you know, just using some imagination, Do you think when she walked away, she never sinned in this area again? I I doubt that was the case. I bet she stumbled and fell again. But when she did, did she have a whole new posture when she went back before the throne of grace? I bet she did. And over time, was she able to find more freedom in this area? I bet she did. And so for those of you who are are here this evening, um, for those of you who aren't believers and you're still wrestling with the scripture's teaching on sexuality, even as you see Jesus meet this woman here, I just, I would encourage you not to let this topic be the thing that stops you from exploring Jesus and just to come to Jesus first and experience him and seek out who he is and then let him work out these things with you. And if you are a believer, I just hope you can find freedom in what we've looked at here this evening, where Jesus loves to meet you in your victories and in your failures, 
and then come alongside you and just help you live as someone who belongs to him, where increasingly so, you can treat people not as objects, but as persons who are made in the image of God and find no guilt or condemnation for anything that you've done or will do. Let's pray.